0: previously on Spider Network sub-series.
1: We kind of left off right when Allende was coming to power. The
0: proving ground for the ideas of the fascist and Nazi post-war international expanded through the entire world. The
2: underground transnational state. 1st Indochina war marked the
0: emergence of new methods of warfare. A
2: young and rather handsome Ho Chi Minh.
0: Phoenix program was an attempt to use Computer networks to track supposed Viet Cong double agents.
2: War really advances technology. People from the Phoenix
0: program become consultants in American police
2: departments. Vietnam was a testing ground.
0: They started the war on drugs as a way to criminalize being black or being a leftist.
2: Colonia Dignidad had sort of perfected a regime of torture. The
0: Chileans scared us.
2: Left-wingers are rounded up. They start getting taken to colonial dignity.
0: They were using the situation to get away with different kinds of research and experimentation that were not plausible for them inside the United States.
2: This is all part of the same project. How the
0: fuck do they have a chemical weapons laboratory? This
2: isn't some relic from the past. You live in the future that they created. The empire never ended. People don't realize how much of motherfucker. The French are.
0: Empire never ended. So,
2: Black Rifle Coffee.
0: The Empire never ended. You killed Naomi. Jeffrey
1: Eston. Jeffrey Eston. Jeffrey Eston. Jeffrey Eston. Jeffrey Eston. Jeffrey Eston.
2: So I want to start us off here with a quote uh, from an interview uh, with Carl Jung given to H.R. Knickerbocker uh, for a, a Hearst newspaper thing in 1939. Jung says, there is no question but that Hitler belongs in the category of the truly mystic medicine man. As somebody commented about him at the last Nuremberg Party Congress, since the time of Muhammad, nothing like it has been seen in this world. His body does not suggest strength. The outstanding character of his physiognomy... I don't know how to fucking pronounce that. Physi- physiognomy? its dreamy look. Physiognomy. Yeah, gnomes. <laughs> like, of course, the <laughs> classical yeah. gnomish archetype that Jung uses. Uh, I was especially struck by that when I saw pictures taken of him in the Czechoslov- Czechoslovakian crisis. There was in his eyes the look of a seer. This markedly mystic characteristic of Hitler's is what makes him do things which seem to us illogical Inexplicable and unreasonable. So you see, Hitler is a medicine man, a spiritual vessel, a demi deity, or even better, a myth. Welcome to part three of the Spiders Network subseries, uh, and today we are taking you underground um, in a in a in a couple of different ways. Our last episode focused, sort of using, using, using our view of Colonia Dignidad and the post-war order, uh, uh, looking at it through the, the lens of, of proving grounds. And this time we're going to look through the lens of magic. Um, and listen, <laughs> listen, I know all the ladies in the audience, you guys like that. Uh, but fellas, bear with me here. Uh, we are, we are going to get a little out there today. We are going to do battle with Wotan But but we are talking about things strictly in the material realm. But that realm is real. Exactly, I was about to say that (laughs) realm just might be bigger than you think it is.
0: Yeah, what what you were saying then, just then, uh, that young quote, I I wasn't familiar familiar with that, but I knew his essay about Hitler as Wotan. And one of the things that uh, that has always reminded me of is anthropological literature on shamanism just something Mm -hmm. that that really interested me for a while. And the idea of, I think it was uh, Mircea Eliade, the the famous uh, Romanian religious scholar, the guy who came up with the idea of um, the sacred and the profane. Uh Uh, When he talked about shamanism, he called it the sickness vocation. Uh, And his idea idea was that a shaman essentially goes around um, a community. And here we're talking about you know very literal shamanism we're talking about you know small communities on the Eurasian steppe uh, a guy would literally go house to house and as he saw it pick up the the psychic disease of everyone in the community he would load it all upon himself and then kind of spew it back in these uh ecstatic trance like baroque performances that could go on for days and in in so doing he purged the tribe of yeah. all these these you know psychic evils that were eating at it and so a shaman's job is not um as a lot of anthropologists presumed before that to make some sense of what's going on you know a shaman is not um a a sort of dream interpreter or something like that he he doesn't explain to you what's going on he takes on your sickness and then manifests it in a uh, what I think could really only be called an art form. And yeah. I think we're going to be doing a lot of crossing over here between the uh, the boundaries of politics, art, magic, and the point at which you know they're no longer explicitly or even you know perceptibly different things.
1: I was going to say it's like a cleansing ritual, right? Uh, absolutely taking on this the the evil of the community whatever the whatever the like stain in the community is the infection and through like ritual and usually sacrifice right uh cleansing and uh purifying the community and i think that's going to get into um, a lot of things that, unfortunately, we have to talk about today.
2: <laughs> well, well you, you say something there that, that does remind me quite a bit of, uh, uh, of our man Adolf Hitler.
1: Yeah, which that is was this, my point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: There used to be a popular conception that Hitler was possessed, right? Like, understandably so. For those of you out there, you know, Hitler famously is sort of caricatured for his speaking style. But if you watch films of him, he does have an extraordinary speaking style, which, by the way, was taught to him by a Jewish person, uh, yeah. a, a mystic who he was friends with, who, in fact, I believe, before Hitler's ascension to power, uh, buried a root in the dirt in Hitler's hometown to help bring him to power. He was a, he was a mystic employed by, uh, by, by, by Hitler or some of Hitler's friends. Uh, he was killed shortly after uh, the, the Reichstag fire, which he had also, by the way, predicted, which You know, in the context, probably not very difficult to predict, considering it's a bit of a false flag operation. Um, But there was (laughs) this there was this thought that, like, Hitler, I I mean, if you watch videos of him, what you see is 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 what you or I might term a madman. If we ever saw him on the street, somebody's gesticulating wild, totally his eyes completely like insane, his mouth twisted in like this schizophrenic rictus what's like careens from being like an insane like scowl to this to this like frothing hunger right and, and and what what he is like the way i've always thought of it there and in fact the way that jung sort of describes him too is he is taking on all of these characteristics of like the german idea the german archetype mm. and like in and and, and and when when jung says he became wotan he like who are we to say that he didn't become Wotan?
0: Right? Yeah, I, I think I think that's that idea is encouraged by the fact that every aspect of Hitler's performances was extremely intentional, was mm-hmm. very very thoroughly rehearsed. Hitler was obsessed with film of himself giving speeches, yes. perfecting his gestures, perfecting his inflections. Uh, and seeing you know out of five different versions of the way I deliver this line, which one gets the biggest pop from the crowd mm-hmm. and i don 't want to go off on one of my you know super long riffs here, but this one <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that I wanted to talk about here um is is the idea of magic you know in communities where that that term still has a real currency. And what it becomes when it loses that currency in, in, in an entire community. Because in a community where magic is just accepted as, you know, an everyday real part of life, it's not, it's not esoteric. It's not weird. It's just a set of techniques and crafts for producing changes in human consciousness. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. it. it yeah. And, and it changes both what you think about and the way you think about it. And At a certain point, you know, thanks to any number of forces from, you know, rationalism and secularism to capitalism, blah, 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 um, this idea of magic as constrained to a given, and usually, you know, fairly, fairly small, fairly isolated cultural context falls apart. And I have a sort of Gnostic view of what happened to it, that it, uh, you could say it broke in half or you could say it had children. I prefer to think of it as kind of a, a mother deity that has children. And uh-huh. one, of, one of them is good. And one of them is insane and it acts evil, maybe isn't evil, but is insane. Um, the good one is called art. And the insane one is called media. And <laughs> they use essentially the same techniques. They understand the same things that magic has always understood. And, Art continues using them uh, for we hope you know on the whole benign purposes purposes of expanding the mind the imagination so forth, uh, but it has to do that without the kind of net of of shared cultural context beneath it you know and and, and artwork now has to create all of the context that would have been assumed already in a civilization where magic is just part of everyday life. So artwork is, uh, is not hampered by this, but it's deeply changed because it, it can't just presume you know all, all the signs and symbols to be the same. Yeah. Um, media goes insane and becomes sort of the, the demiurgical instrument of whoever uh, has the 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 focus and the practice and, and the oftentimes insane will to master it. And I think one of the reasons the Nazis still exert such a fascination beyond their actual history and the things they did is that Nazism was the first modern political movement to discover... Uh, media as inseparable from politics. Mm. To make, not just use media to document its politics, but to make media part of its politics. And to we'll have it function this, as
2: like a weapon, essentially. Absolutely,
0: absolutely yeah. You have, you know, the, the classic example would be Triumph of the Will. Mm-hmm. But um, you talking about Hitler's speeches and how, how much he would study All his old work to see what worked the best. And in fact, um, audio tape, you know, the uh, recording medium that gave birth to pretty much all modern recording, that was invented by the Nazis because they wanted an audio medium that was high fidelity enough that they could play Hitler's speeches over the radio and tell people that they were being broadcast live because they wanted to create this illusion that Hitler was so superhumanly energetic that he would give the same, you know, roaring throat shredding screaming speech in seven different cities in the same day.
2: Yes. So yeah, and that, that 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 makes sense because that also, you know, in keeping with this sort of tradition of magic to to somebody who isn't familiar with this technology and, you know, at the time most people probably wouldn't be certainly not the layman. Right. Um, it does appear that that hitler is like you said superhuman and 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 that to me is i mean that's a huge part of the nazi project is both the reclaiming of this past you know era of superhuman aryans and the, the creation the assemblage of this new sort of superman
0: right i i see the 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 symbiosis of media with politics in nazism as very much kind of you know completing the circle that would have begun with, you know, magic as authority in politics mm-hmm. uh, thousands and thousands of years ago. And of course, after Nazism, whether or not we admit it, this symbiosis of media and politics is, I mean, that's just with us forever. That's what our, all politics are now, Yeah, you know, in, in a very real way, there are no post Nazi politics. Or no non-Nazi <laughs> politics even. That all all the politics that have existed since then have made use of media not just to, you know, document themselves but as a constituent of themselves. And I hate to bring up Trump as you know an obvious example, but you think of what his campaign would have been without media if you were just reading, you know, his policy positions in a newspaper.
1: Well, but, you know, but any, I mean, you could take any American president, I mean, think of, you know, Reagan, or even, you know, think of Obama, right? I mean, all of these, you know, at different stages of like, you know, media development, which you can kind of, you know, go back and document, and that's going to inform, you know, again, those, you know, those developments in, you know, media structure and technology is going to inform the way that, um, you know, politicians then absorb that and use it and, you know, have new techniques for it. So it's not going to ever look the same, but, but absolutely. It's completely and totally inseparable. Um, yeah. Well,
2: some, something, uh, something I want to bring up is this book that I'm holding up that of course our listeners can't read, which is called dark star rising magic and power in the age of Trump by Gary Lockman, who is actually the bassist for Blondie, which I think is very funny. Um, but, but he tries to tackle that. I haven't, I haven't started reading it, but like, but, but so what you guys are saying is true. I mean, this is not like a concept that, that, that isn't sort of in the zeitgeist. They are using whatever this form of magic.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't think it's usually talked about in this way. A lot of people talk about the aesthetics of politics or conversely, the politics of the aesthetics, which are actually a bit different, but not germane to our conversation. Um, (laughs) But, like, that that has been absolutely a legacy or, or just something that, you you know, once done is very difficult to move out of or break out of, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's that famous Walter Benjamin line that fascism is, is the aestheticization of politics. Right. It's yeah. politics become aesthetics. And I think... I think um, that's, yeah, a little he, simplistic. It is, yeah. And, and he is also writing this... Um, Really, before you know, kind of the meat of the Second World War, certainly before you know, the concentration camps and any public knowledge of them, uh, and of course, before knowledge of what will uh succeed uh, Hitler and what will succeed World War II. And I think, in retrospect, for me anyway, I find it uh, a little bit more accurate to say that fascism is kind of uh politics. In the attempt to become magic, yes, that fascism is is politics um, desperately trying to attain the dimensions of magic, or you could say religion, depending on you know which exact fascist movement you're well, talking I, about.
1: Yeah, I would say, or you could say the sublime, which is yeah. the perfection of the aesthetic, right? I mean, or the purest form of the aesthetic would be the sublime, which is both the most beautiful and horrific thing that you can witness, you know, to the point of complete and total, um, like, dissolution of the self. Yeah.
2: Yeah, especially sublime with Rome.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, but I'm serious. I mean, the experience of the sublime is that you are completely annihilated by the force of, the horror and, and unspeakable beauty of of the world, and and you know the idea that the aesthetic of fascism, if you can kind mm-hmm. of separate it, or that the tool of fascism is to attempt to harness that at the power of the state,
0: absolutely is,
1: is, is kind of the innovation yes. that happens in in different ways between you know I hate to do this but or to be pedantic but in very different and importantly different ways. Um, but you know, uh, with respect to what Hitler and the Nazi Party does and what Mussolini does, and there's there's sure. important differences there that we don't need to get into. But um, well, I
2: think I think I mentioned this last episode. But when when Young called uh, called Hitler Wotan, he referred to Mussolini as just a man. Mm. Yeah. Well, and that would make
1: that, sense because it's really the Italian state, right? And that's, a, that's an important yeah. difference because the thing with, with the Italian fascists is that, you know, the, the, the kind of, I mean, one way to put it is that, you know, the Italians, they didn't think of a Volk, right? With, yeah. the, with respect to the Nazis. Well, there's no such thing
2: as an Italian. Well,
1: exactly. That's the whole thing. It, with, with the Nazis, the idea was that the people make the state. Right? right? The volk and the purifying of the volk and the creation of the volk is where the legitimacy of the state arises, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually an inversion with the Italian fascists who said, actually, no, the state makes everything. There is no concept of a people or a community or anything outside of the bounds of the state. And so there's an actual like different. Um, you know, it, there, it, there's, a, there's a difference, or it's, it's like kind of a mirror there in a lot of, in, in some strange ways.
0: Yeah, it, it, maybe it's just because I was raised really Catholic, but when I look at Mussolini and Italian fascism, I see it arising directly out of St. Paul and the idea of the body of the church and the body of Christ.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the Italians. You can't, like, separate the Catholic <laughs> stuff from anything Italian, really.
0: Yeah, this this notion of the thing they came to call lo stato corporativo, you know, the corporate state, and mm. they, meant, they meant that in the the modern sense of corporate, um, you know, the sense of corporation as we use it, but they right. also meant that in the, the mystical sense of the state as a body. Yes, you know, exactly. Great, greater than the sum of its parts. And this is, you know, directly out of St. Paul talking about the body of the church that you know, when believers in Christ gather together, they become a mystical body greater than the sum of its parts, which is metaphorically magically identical with the body of Christ himself, you know, Mm -hmm. which becomes animate with uh, what, you know, if, if you were a certain kind of mystic, you would call like the astral body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, in the same way, the the Italian fascists have this idea of the the kind of astral or mystical body of the state uh, irreducible to any given person, like you were just right. saying. And of course, uh, a body like that, a kind of transcendent unity, can't think, so what it has to be driven by is will or destiny. Mm, yes, or, action, you know, yeah, or,
2: you know, removing the division between word and action. Right. Yeah, yeah. Famously, is I mean, famously, that's 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 what the Italians really wanted to do. I mean, there excuse was this, me. Thought and action. Sorry. The not the, the Nazis and the Italians really, but the Italians especially um, had this obsession with modernization, with speed, especially. Yeah. Which the is ironic, given really. what we actually know about fascist Italy and yeah. its uh, <laughs> inability to 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 do much of anything besides speed to its own demise. Um, but but this obsession with modernism that 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 the Germans I, I, I sort of phrased this wrong before the Germans also had this but the Germans looked back they saw mm. they saw the future through the lens of the right. past. Whereas the Italians you know it's a young country and a young it's not a people's really like there are many myriad different peoples in in in, in Italy and of course there are some differentials uh you know different people in, in in Germany too but there's no like like you're saying there's no volkishness there right there's there's no that, that's why Italian anti-semitism was so lackluster yeah because they couldn't they, they had no they had no volkish spirit to to to, to, to put forth towards that they had but nothing an, to sacrifice. The Jews too.
1: An important component of that too, and we talk about the aesthetics of Nazism is that, like, the creation of this mythical Volkish, uh, you know, history and people like that began pretty much in the late eighteen uh, nineties, yeah. or like eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, in a bunch of different kind of pre-Nazi, but very anti-Semitic groups, organizations, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call them, that all basically failed. But then, you know, (laughs) then come the Nazis (laughs) out of that. So, but, you know, they had, you know, talk about the appropriation of the occult. I mean, that's where the swastika comes from, right? And that starts popping up in the turn of the century in like stores with like clothing for kids and costumes and necklaces right. and uh like bavarian you know idyllic bavarian kind of dress styles and things like that and so this this entire kind of movement to create this like i, I mean it's really creating the 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 you know mythology of volkish culture starts emerging like much earlier than Hitler, right? Absolutely.
0: Uh, you, we were talking before we actually started recording about Nietzsche, um, mm-hmm.
1: and and, and Wagner, We should probably mention Wagner too. Wagner,
0: yeah. Too, yeah. definitely yeah. mention. And <laughs> 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 Nietzsche, of you course. You can is,
1: separate the art from the art. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going <laughs> to <that> <laughs> yeah. make that argument. Uh,
0: I have sat through <laughs> one of the four-hour nights of the Ring of the Nibelungen, and it's pretty hard to separate the art from the. Art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. It's also pretty hard to stay awake. But, yeah. Um, Nietzsche, of course, is you know hugely misunderstood and misused. Mm. We talked about last time his his awful you know proto Nazi sister, terrible and her sister. awful proto Nazi husband, um, publishing like bowlerized versions of his text and trying to make them seem you know proto Nazi essentially. But when we talk about you know, the the famous you know Nietzschean idea of the death of God, he um, he uses that aphorism, like he used a lot of his aphorisms a bunch of times in a bunch of different books, and often tweaked them as he repeated them and there's one version at least of the Death of God aphorism that um that goes something like, "God is dead, and we have killed him
1: mm-hmm. how
0: will How will we atone for this horrible crime? you know the the point of the death of God was not just. Oh, you know, people don't believe in religion anymore. Not even just that people will never be able to believe in, you know, a cultural or or social or, you know, civilizational uh universal constant like God. Uh it's also that something is going to replace the god that you've killed. Yes. You know, well, yes. Yeah. You you will not just simply go on with a big void, you know, in the sky, kind of watching down over everything. And you could I think argue philosophically that the rest of Nietzsche's work is the attempt to ask, What do you put there next? You know, how do you replace God without lying, essentially? Well, I don't I- think
1: he ever was able to get there. I think it drove him mad. Yeah, I mean, because the idea was, you know, we are going to enter this century of, you know, because the death of God, like you say, we have killed God. What that means is that we have advanced as a society for so long that not only do we not need God to explain things, but we have other explanations for everything that used to be kind of magical, right? That Mm -hmm, we've supplanted, we've become our own authority. That gets into, you know... Uh, you know, you could talk about slave morality and how that emerges out of the Christians, whatever. But we don't need to get into that. But that, you know, entering into what he forecasted as a century, or at least, of deep, deep nihilism, right? Because when you kill God, basically the idea is that, you know, you have, you know, basically all morality that used to be undergirded by this kind of explanation by this sort of natural god law whatever you want to call it right all of that morality then loses its fundament and becomes endlessly fungible and able Mm -hmm. to be used towards any kind of purpose right because without any kind of um common understanding and grounding of these values the values don't it's not that the values then become invaluable, if I can explain this correctly, but that the values devalue themselves as yeah. this nihilism grows deeper, right? They, be- they become instrumental. Exactly. They become completely instrumentalized. And so you start to see that. I mean, I you know, he was right about a lot of things, right? You start to see in the 20th century, especially... I mean, even fucking now, right? You look and you see um, you know evangelical uh, priests sitting with Trump who has a thousand percent paid how many women for abortions or whatever, and it doesn't matter because this is not where you know all of these values have now become instrumentalized towards political will or will to power as it as it yeah. you know very well may be, but the point being that. What I'm trying to get at is that what ended up driving Nietzsche mad was that he never could answer the question of what comes after the nihilism. Mm-hmm. What what gets born out of this nihilism? Can anything be born out of it?
2: Well, it, it's it's ironic that you say that, though, because his sister could answer that question.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah.
2: I'm I'm serious. She could. She she really she joined the Nazi party. I don't know if he was there, but, but Hitler certainly sent a eulogy to be read at her funeral. You know, I think she died in 36. She was a member of the party. And, and, and it's, it's like, I mean, we all know the thing about history is that the, everything that happened was the only thing that could happen, right? Like, for, for all intents and purposes, there are no other realities. We mm. can't, we can't, there's no other path to be taken, um, and, and because, because there's, there's, there's just this one, you know, strip of history that we're all on. Um, but it does seem to me, like, if you examine everything, that, especially that was going on in the late 1800s in Germany, the Volkisch movement, the, the, I don't even know how to pronounce this, really, I've only read the word, but Ariasafi movement, um, which is sort of like the more esoteric side of Volkisch yeah. uh, ideology, which is necessary! You need an esotericism yeah, yeah, yeah. To, go, to go with Volkish ideology, because most of it's made up. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, it's, it's pseudoscience, or not yeah. even science, it's pseudohistory. That's yeah, where the
1: tool stuff comes from, correct?
2: Yes, yeah. The, so, the, so, I mean, you mentioned, Michael mentioned before the swastika as well. I do want to mention that on Hitler's Catholic school that he went to in Austria— there are swastikas on the awning there mm. of, a, of, a, of a Catholic school. So, this was in the air. This was, I mean, I'm sure it's not like he designed the flag or anything, although I do believe he had a hand in it. Uh, this was just something that you would see during your whole life. And this is not a Germanic symbol, really. I mean, of course, it is. There's, uh, you know, long instances of the swastika in Europe, many European, uh, let's say, Less than woke European groups use that as an excuse to continue to use the symbol, uh, especially if you go to um, the uh, the or not the to Ukraine. Um, but but yeah, the Thule Society. So it, it was started by this guy named von uh which who's again I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. Who who was actually sort of pushed out of the picture later, um, and who by the way drowned himself in the Bosphorus. Uh, on the the day that that Nazis surrendered uh, in, in back in turkey but uh, but it was essentially like an esoteric society, one of many Germany was sick with these societies uh, in, in during the early early twentieth century um,
0: just to point one thing out, like you were saying, Germany was sick with these societies, this Nietzschean question of what comes after the death of God. Europe in general is sick with these societies. The United yes, States is sick with absolutely. these societies. They're absolutely everywhere and a lot of what ends up becoming kind of compressed uh into the meat grinder and emerges as nazism is little bits and pieces of all these different esoteric movements. Yes. Like a lot of the um you know the Aryan bullshit, the idea of you know Germans as Aryans as the original people comes from theosophical misunderstanding. Yeah, 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 or,
2: absolutely. I mean, they believed, yeah. they, they believed, you know, one of the big reasons that this sort of Arianism ideology was adopted is because they believed that the ancient Arians who were a pure race had a gland next to the pineal gland. There's an empty space there now where they used to have an extra gland that could, uh, that 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 could make them telepathic. And because of, <laughs> and the implication here is Jewish uh, sort of interference and inbreeding and dirtying the race, we, unfortunately, some some shiksas, who I'm probably related to, had <laughs> sex with some, you know, Rudolphs and, and, and Hanses. And they lost that gland. Um, yeah,
0: I'm just just imagine George Costanza going, you
2: brought out the gland. You bred <laughs> out the gland, Jerry. It was actually a sort of Faustian bargain because they lost the gland. But Jewish women grew giant breasts after that, which, which they still have to this day. And they got those from the Germans. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> who, who, by the way, all men and women, everybody in Germany used to have enormous honkers. And, including the men and yeah including the men absolutely i mean the, half of their bodies were covering these things and and of course you know the jews stole them um <laughs> but the Thule society was a bunch of these different societies you know there's the rumors about the real society and stuff too i don't want to get into that because there's not a ton of documentation on that and i don't know that much i
1: thought that one was like kind of maybe not yeah it's like serious made, yes maybe there made up a, a little bit like there were pamphlets yeah. that were circling around the German state at the time kind of like um, saying it was this thing, but it never really was a thing, kind of. Yes. Certainly yeah. Certainly not in the makeup of the tool, tool society.
0: Vril was supposedly like an infinite energy source.
2: Yeah. Something mm-hmm. like that.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: It's, Elon uh, Musk has tapped into it.
0: Yeah. He seems like the kind of dude who could <laughs> genuinely be convinced of that yes, by like absolutely. this time tomorrow.
2: Yeah. He's like, we've got the Tesla Model 4, it's powered by Vril yeah <laughs> um but but so but like the thought came about because because there was this you know essentially if you, world war one was a blood sacrifice you know it was if you were alive during that time period it was like the apocalypse yeah, yeah. you know like it was it was it, there was a scale of destruction of mayhem of death like uh, you know, unlike unlike the world had ever seen, especially unlike you could ever imagine. Because yeah, remember, it's hard to
1: overstate, like, how destroyed Germany was after World War One. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the the crazy thing about it is Germany, foreign troops never entered the borders of Germany, which had a really bad psychic effect on the Germans. I swear to God, if 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 a British horseman had just like made it to Berlin or something, we would not be faced with a lot of the problems we had (laughs) because, because the fact that, 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 that foreign troops never really entered Germany besides a little bit on the edges. Um, there was, there was this large, like, a large part of the population who believed that they had actually just been sold out, that there was possible to win the war. Of course, if you look at the actual economic situation, especially the food situation, the manpower situation, totally impossible to win the war. Yeah. And there's a
0: a deep irony to this whole stab in the back bullshit, because Mm -hmm. one of the main reasons the war actually did end was German soldiers just saying, fuck this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and going home. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But I think you two are absolutely right. And it's a thing I come back to in my own thinking work all the time that World War One now we look well, I was gonna say we look back on it as we hardly look back on it at all.
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely.
0: It, it's it's just the prequel to World well, War Two.
1: Americans, at least, we should well, say.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. And um, the scale of destruction that it wrought would have been, you know, um, indistinguishable from the end of the world. Yes, to lots and lots absolutely. of people. I think it was Eric Hobsbawm who said that at the end of World War I, going east to west, there was not a single government left standing from France to Japan. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. insane. Yeah. None insane. of them ended the wars with the governments they'd started with. And the idea of a war killing, uh, I, I don't know what the, the estimates are these days. The last I heard it was in the like 7 million range something like that i'm looking
2: it up right now um th-
0: that was just unfathomable that's not how many people were 15 to killed.
2: 22 million deaths
0: oh wow so it's gone up a lot since i 40 looked.
2: million casualties total including those 15 to 23 million and 23 million wounded uh military personnel
0: yeah the, the sort of wars the europeans were used to at this time did not go on long enough and no. were not fought brutally enough and did not use things like the fucking beaufort's gun enough right to kill that many people, you know, a war didn't go on to a million casualties, let alone 15 to 22. And I think in a lot of ways, the, uh, the first world war is kind of a corollary to the, the Nietzschean death of God played mm-hmm. out on, mm-hmm. on the political and the parapolitical, uh, map in the sense that it was the gigantic last blood orgy of this, this, hyper convoluted, um, incestuous kind of paracolonial system. It was of, the
2: it was the crashing end of the, the the symphony of Europe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Of of all these interrelated families fighting for, you know, um, export markets and shit in the same places. That it, it it was an entire economic world order eating itself alive in a kind of you know blood frenzy that i don't think most people alive then would have believed human beings would have gone that far in fighting for anything by that point you know there was um i think it was a fucking otto von bismarck after the franco-prussian war who said well it seems pretty safe to say there aren't going to be any more wars after this one
1: <laughs> he was Classic the Fukuyama of his time <laughs> yes yeah yeah,
0: yeah the, the people really thought there's this kind of you know in keeping with all the uh the uh esoteric societies and the utopian groups that we talked about before you know the non-marxian communists and shit yes there was a real feeling um and it seems like particularly among the the british that um things like you know, universal male suffrage and universal education would just produce a world populace sufficiently enlightened mm-hmm. that there would never be a real serious war again. And, yeah, and it's sort of there, Fabian mentality. Absolutely. That's the, that's the exact word for it. Um, and if there were, it would be, you know, a minor border skirmish with maybe a dozen dead on each side that would then immediately be settled by treaty. Yes. You know, so. well
1: this was I mean this was a big effect that this is kind of a side note but I do want to mention this is that you know it, you know at the end of World War one in, in you know in what we call the interwar years like this is when liberalism goes into a deep crisis because of absolutely this. and it is it's a, like a world crisis where people are really questioning you know can li- like basically the liberal project failed what's next? Is there mm-hmm. something next? And you get this collection of historians and theorists and, as it is, economists debating what is to be done about restoring the liberal world order. And out of that, those conferences, one of the most famous being the Walter Lippman Lipwin- Colloquium, named after, of course, Walter Lippman, the fucking horrible liberal theorist. Um, Another guy journalist. that can suck me off. Yeah father of propaganda in a lot of ways. But, uh, you know, out of this is what is where the term and the kind of, you know, beginning forms of what we call neoliberal thought is born. Because what they saw was, you know, liberalism has been completely popularly, not even just politically, but popularly discredited as being a vehicle for progress. And Mm -hmm. you've got this rising threat of, both socialism and communism, that is sweeping Europe. And, you know, you've got this other thing that hadn't yet totally formed that, you know, ended up being fascism. Now, what do, you know, and what are we going to do? And this is where neoliberalism is born.
0: Yeah. The, one of the, the big, uh, is the plural of impetus, impetai, I guess? Impetai for, for what Impotence. became... One of the big impotence, um, <laughs> if you suffer from big impotence, <laughs> uh, uh, for what would become Keynesianism and mm. kind of um, you know the mild parasocialism of the the uh, uh, New Deal era here um, was the fact that uh, Maynard Keynes was at the Versailles Conference, right, and. Basically, he took a, a really detailed notes, left a journal that's worth reading, and concluded if if these are our options, if w- what these people are proposing is really what's left to us, we are doomed. Like the human race is not going to survive.
2: Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, He was let, like, "Oh,
0: we've got a five prosper. year plan,
1: or we've got a four year plan. What are we going to do? We got to do better than that." And he basically yeah. was talking about the Soviets and and you know the German state.
0: Yeah, this that it. You know, because Keynes was a an orthodox classical you know free market economist uh, before yeah. World War One and the Versailles conference. and he came out of that, essentially committed to finding something else because nothing they were talking about there was going to do it
2: well, to, to get us back to the thule real quick, this is sort of setting the stage for, for what we are dealing with here, right? We are dealing with a nation of traumatized people, many of them veterans, um, who are obsessed both with their, themselves and their past. And in fact, so obsessed mm-hmm. with the past that they create a sort of like mythical, I, I mean, yes. the stuff that these guys believed is truly incredible. I, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the hollow earth theory. Uh, where, where, where? In fact, inside of the inside of the world is another world. There's a tiny sun at the middle of it. It is a verdant world with advanced races and advanced technologies. This is the same sort of line of thinking where Atlantis comes from. And in mm-hmm. fact, many members of the Thule Society actually believe that that the Aryans came from Atlantis.
0: Brace and Liz, and, and Chomsky can see that the Hollow Earth is actually where I am right now.
2: Yes, <laughs> Michael does appear to be in some sort of Hollow Earth. I didn't want to say anything.
0: No, that was um, cool. Nobody but, knows how
2: to get here. The hollow earth, well, Admiral Byrd does, but I digress. <laughs> uh, the hollow earth fascinates me so much because with the Nazis and then with everything that came after, we actually do enter into a hollow earth. We do enter into the subterranean realm. It's not the hollow earth dreamed up by these, by these morphine addicts in the coffee houses uh, uh, of Bavaria. But it's the actual hollow earth, the real hollow earth, the, 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 what it actually looks like when you go underground. And what I'm talking about there is Hitler in the bunker, people going mad, suicides. Yeah. I'm talking about in, in Colonia Dignidad, the tunnels that ran underneath it. And when Colonia Dignidad was raided after it was shut down when they were looking for Paul Schaefer, he would hide in those tunnels, just like Hitler. And I'm sure that was not lost on him. And then in the general sense... During the Cold War, and even now, although now you could say that we've all entered the Hollow Earth, that there is no Hollow Earth, we've all gone underground. But uh, but even then, the the world was crisscrossed by tunnels and by men doing secret things in secret places.
0: When I hear Hollow Earth, the first thing that comes to mind, after the you know the the mystical theory, is more mass graves. In yes. Those it, more mass graves in those five years than the Earth had seen in its entire combined history before Absolutely.
2: That. Absolutely. So, so with the Thule Society, uh, it, it, it had a lot of names. And it was not a big society. There's about 350 members in Munich, about 1,500 in Bavaria total. But they were powerful. They were powerful people, and they were well-connected people. There was, there was a mix of aristocracy and, and former army officers or current army officers and, and, and several names that would actually appear pretty high up on the Nazi roster. I'm talking specifically about uh, Rudolf Hess and, and Alfred Rosenberg. Rudolf Hess, of course, made the famous Hess flight to Britain during the early stages of, well, technically for the Germans, not the early stages, but in about 1941, uh, possibly because an astrologer told him to go. Um, And and, you know, he had sort of been driven mad. I don't know by by what by possibly by the shit that he was messing with. Uh, But these guys would meet and discuss, you know, these these sort of esoteric theories that they had. Uh, But Munich also had another group of people. In fact, a couple other groups of people that were sort of the opposite of the Fool Society. Those groups were the United Social Democratic Party or excuse me, the Independent Social Democratic Party. Uh, and and the Communist Party uh, mm. in the, its early stages. And so so uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this. I'm sure many of our listeners do. But in general, this isn't really discussed. But Germany basically uh, underwent both a social democratic slash liberal and a communist revolution at the end of World War One, where where in many parts of Germany, uh, workers and soldiers formed councils, formed Soviets, and and took over pieces of land for you know however long amount of time. Um, this actually went on for quite a few years during the beginning. Yeah, it was of the, quite a
1: long time, actually.
2: Yeah, I mean, this was happening up until almost the mid twenties. Yeah,
1: um,
2: where 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 parts of Germany would just go into revolt, uh, and so in April 1919, a, a group of, in fact, not communists but anarchists declare the Munich Soviet Republic, and these guys, they actually, uh, this was sort of popularly known as the Coffee House uh, Anarchist, Repo- or excuse me, the Coffee House. The regime of the coffeehouse anarchists among, uh, among citizens of Munich, because it was basically a bunch of like fobs, uh, or excuse me, fops, and like morons that were in charge of this. I mean, at, they, they were in power for six days. They declared war on the Swiss for not supplying them with 60 locomotives. To uh, be I fair, they- <laughs> I would also declare war on the Swiss. Absolutely, I already have. And if this podcast will invade, we shoot first. Just to see. That what is happened. the tagline of this podcast. We shoot first.
0: <laughs> will the Swiss fight back? Absolutely
2: not. They're neutral. They can't fight back. I'm not looking into what neutral means. Um, <laughs> this They have this thing called the Redoubt. That means they must doubt their ability to withstand this podcast.
1: Uh, <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs>
2: after about six days, uh, some men step in. Yeah, the uh, communists by, finally took over, Exactly. Right? Yeah. Led by a guy named Eugene Levine, uh, who I believe was Jewish, uh, and, and actually institute a, a Soviet republic, um, or Soviet city-state, as it is. They form a red army uh, of, of, of tens of thousands of, of workers, factory workers from Munich, uh, and, and they took over the city. Now, meanwhile, the social democratic government, because, of course, there has been a social democratic uh, you know, regime basically installed in all parts of Germany, flees to a different part of Bavaria. They try to fight. They, they come there with, with, with what's left of government troops and try to fight the Red Army at, and this is a little bit of synchronicity there, Dachau.
1: Right. They are
2: repulsed by the uh, by the 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 burly workers from Munich.
1: Yeah we should pause for a second because what happens here if people don't know is that the Social Democrats in Germany team up to basically they see the communists not as their uh, you know problematic fr- like friends but like actually as their enemies. Mm-hmm. And, and they uh, have no interest in teaming with the communists and actually want to fight them to the death. Basically. Yes, a-
2: absolutely. And, and, and of course, Germany's army has been severely downgraded uh, after, after World War I. I mean, yeah. there are incredible limitations. It's probably smaller than the NYPD at this point for the whole of the country. Uh, and, and so they are unable to really take back the city. So, what they have to do, and i this is this is where I start buzzing a little bit. They make what you might call a Faustine bargain with the free Corps. Now, the Free Corps are essentially veterans organizations proto fascist most of them, and sometimes even uh further along than that i don't know what to call it uh who have popped up all over Germany and who who are you know even in parts of poland uh and at uh, German parts of Poland. Well, it's all Poland, baby.
1: Well, basically, we should say also is that the Free Corp are, it's a like unholy alliance that might sound mm-hmm. familiar to some people between basically peasants at the time and middle class uh, members yes. and also veterans. V- and basically uniting against uh, industrial city workers, which would be the yes. Communist Party. So yeah. you have this kind of, um, you know that there, there are early paramilitary, you know, fascist gangs basically that wrote that that roam around uh, at, in place of any kind of national army because, like you mentioned, there just there really isn't one after World yeah. War
2: One. The Weimar, Weimar state is weak.
1: Yeah, because so many people died, but also because just so many people are not interested, are like fuck the army. Yeah,
2: <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's been very unpopular. All those apocryphal stories about Vietnam vets returning and getting spit out of the airports, which mm. there is, by yeah. the way, no documented evidence of. Um, Except Rambo. That actually was <laughs> happening in Germany, uh, yeah. which is people would be like, you know, if you walked around in a soldier's uniform, you would get the shit beaten out of you. It should stabbed. be mentioned
0: that, that these aren't just, you know, vets the way we have vets and they have other jobs, whatever, you know, you don't necessarily know who they are there's a whole class now in a way there has never been before in a modern nation of guys with severe PTSD, severe psychological problems, uh, you know, amputated limbs, mutilations, all kinds of shit, just kind of desperately wandering around Germany. I mean, also all
1: unemployed, by the way. Yes. I
0: was just trying, I was just about to say, trying to look for work, trying to figure out anything they could do to, uh, just maintain, uh, a living, let alone any sort of decency or you know respect. And when the Freikorps comes along and becomes not not only a, an organization that will accept them, but uh, an organization that I think they called them, the Germans called them the old fighters. Yes, and and the Freikorps were the first people to use, uh, as far as I know, the first people to use old fighters, not pejoratively, not as an insult. Mm. Uh, and to celebrate and welcome these guys and say, we want you specifically if you're an old fighter. Because, you know, you got stabbed in the back by, well, we'll talk about that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you deserve better. Right, you know? right, right. Yeah. You, you were fucked over. And we are going to team up and get the people who fucked you.
1: And the point being, like like we said, there are a bunch of unemployable, uh, psychologically damaged men with literally no place to go except for these yeah. organizations. And the Tool yeah. Society becomes as instrumental here as well, as as well as other kind of what you would call um, kind of like civil society organizations, yeah. like leagues and other kind of like popular, uh, like social organizations that pop up because they basically become like nexus points for all of these people to gather together In lieu of any kind of other, literal, any other social economic structure, right?
2: Yeah, and and with the Thule Society in particular, too, they actually form some of the backbone of the resistance to the Munich uh, Soviet Republic, uh, during the time before the, the government returns to Munich, or excuse me, the social democratic government returns to Munich, they actually commit acts of terror. They, 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 they have pitched battles with the communists in the streets. And this, by the way, I mean, step back and look at this. This is a cult. These are people who believe that Aryans used to be able to have, be, have fucking telepathy. They believe that we walk on a hollow earth. Some of these people believe that we have a moon, that there is ice. Some of these people believe that we are ourselves within a hollow earth and that the stars are made of ice and they are suspended in a black sea above us. And these people are going out on the streets and shooting at factory workers. Unsurprisingly, they lose. So what we have is the, is the now a giant force of the Freikorps and the, German, uh, the uh, Social Democratic Party government marching on Munich, and it is April 30th. Now, April 30th, some of you might remember, well, actually, I'm sure none of you remember except for our German listeners, is that there's a holiday that, that falls on that day whose name I will mispronounce, but Walpurgsnacht, or Walpurgis Night. Now, this is technically, this is one of those holidays, kind of like Halloween, that start out like a pagan holiday, although unlike Halloween, became somewhat Christianized and was sort of adopted into the Christian canon, um, but, but it is, it's actually, I believe, in Faust, they, 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 there is a, uh, uh, a witch's Sabbath that takes place on that night. But, yep. but for our purposes, this is a witch's Sabbath. And so it's not lost on me that these troops march in or start marching on the city on that day. Now, the, 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 the communists are smart. Well, not too smart, actually, because what happens next. But they had a good idea that they didn't fully go through with. And they take some hostages including seven members of the leadership of the Thule Society. Now, one of these names, I'm sure that some of our listeners will be, uh, will, will, will pique their interest, Prince Gustav of Thurn and Taxis, which is, uh, I'm sure some of you remember from the crying of Lot 49. And uh fans, and,
0: yep. Exactly. And
2: <laughs> Countess Helle von Westarp, a, a German sailor, uh, takes them out in a yard and shoots them, which I think is very poetic. Uh, unfortunately, that night, on the night of Walpurgisnacht, which actually is the night of Walpurgis Night, I just said, uh, the 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 sort of proto-fascist and social democratic groups march on the city. They they they, they have overwhelming force. They break the resistance, and they uh, they 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 take it over. And when they do that, they kill basically everybody involved with the Munich Soviet. It's 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 a real Paris Commune type situation. Yeah. Um.
1: I want to pause for a second and just like, you know, as a backdrop, this is 1919, like we mentioned, like this Mm -hmm. is supposed to be the chain revolutions, right? Like this is, this is a big deal. The German, this is what's supposed to be the German revolution. And what you have is the liberal party, the social Democrats, which I mean, okay, social Democrats, liberals, whatever we want to call them, they were social Democrats, teaming up with fascists to take down what were mostly bolsheviks german bolsheviks and uh, and communists and i I mean it it is such a disaster like what obviously what happens next and it's fucking heartbreaking it is completely heartbreaking um you said that history can only happen one way you know but like this is a point that you point to and you say like This is not what was supposed to
2: happen. Yes. Well, exactly. That's my whole thing, is people say, this is why you can never, I can never forgive. And I know I sound absurd saying this in the year 2020, but you can never forgive the Social Democratic Party in Germany for basically denying us a beautiful future
0: you were just talking about you know this is supposed to be the chain reaction i mean for for a, a bona fide marxist the idea of socialism in one country does not exist at this right. point and and the the russians who are are now in sort of delicate control of germany uh <laughs> they they don't know what the fuck to do if of, of russia you mean uh, yeah i'm sorry yeah of russia not not germany that would have been different <laughs> um uh they don't know what the fuck to do with with the idea of a socialism that's supposed to lead to communism if it doesn't roll across Europe. Right. They're not prepared for that at all. So this doesn't only, you know, change the history of of uh Germany and of the rest of Europe and possibly the rest of the world, but it also profoundly changes the history of of what will become the Soviet Union and yes, Russia in particular. Absolutely. Because they have to figure out a way to keep this thing alive without the entire support network that they were expecting to be there.
2: I mean, I mean around this time, of course, we have the Soviets marching into Poland. And yeah. Liz, cover I your know. ears, please. <laughs> the, miracle, the so-called miracle in the Vistula, where they are somehow turned around. And of course, people alternately blame Trotsky and Stalin for this. I, of course, take the third position where I blame the Poles. Um,
0: I'm I'm half Polish and I also blame the Poles. I don't we suck.
2: <laughs> I mean to be honest, <laughs> if you're losing to the Poles, which has been a country for about three months, you're yeah. probably not gonna win against Germany.
0: No. Our whole thing <laughs> is that we lose everything. That's that's like the national identity. Except without Poland.
2: CIA help, right? Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. A so- solidarity. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's a little um, bit but
2: but what we have here though, what we have here though is is, is, is we actually do have these, the, the Germans basically taking a modern position that they don't even know they're taking, right? With the, with, with the Social Democrats and the Freikorps right. uniting, and of course, they united in many other parts of Germany. Every single one of these communist revolts was crushed by basically the same exact combination. Rosa Luxemburg shot in the head and dropped in the river. Same exact combination. Social Democratic masters, fascist at the time, at the time, foot soldiers. And that presages what we had for the rest of the 20th century, which is if we take the social Democrats to be liberals, which they were, aligning and really melding and becoming one new—it's a dialectic, right? You take, you take the social Democrats, you take fascists, or, and then you combine them and you have something new. And to me, what we, the new thing that we have there, if we take a broad view of it, is the 20th century, right? Yeah. Because for for after World War II, look at it. All you have are these liberal democratic governments using these fascist governments as foot soldiers, right? I mean, we're talking, you know, we're talking about Chile, we're talking about Pinochet, we're talking about all over South America, we're talking about South Africa, we, this 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 Faustian bargain. That these liberal democracies make with these 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 fascists, and that what they do is they in essence become a new thing.
0: Yeah, these are these are you know talking about the hollow earth. These are the corpses inside the pediment of the sculpture. You know what I mean? These yes. are the people. These are the people walled into the crypt that um, we were talking about the Italian fascists earlier and their comparatively shallow conception of you know. First, via the futurists, everything being about modernity and speed and violence, and then sort of harnessing that to the power of the state uh, via what will become fascism. And I think one of the reasons the uh, the German you know adaptation of fascism into Nazism was more successful, and also continues to fascinate people both historically, analytically, and in um, really unfortunate ways. Uh, is precisely because of this, because there is this buried underside to it. It's it's not founded simply on you know an idea. It's founded on a pile of dead bodies, mm-hmm. and it keeps racking up piles of dead bodies. And it has this subterranean element with which it manages to connect the um, the fixations of fascism as it comes out of Italy. All the way back to the subterranean world, and it's kind of a divided subterranean world, the half they want you to see, which is all the sort of pan-Germanic mythos, you know, reaching back to the beginning of time. And then there's this other half of the underground or the hollow world, which is where all the bodies are, millions and millions of bodies.
1: Yeah, I mean, even, you know, if you take even the concept of the Reich, I mean, something that is so lost on when people, I mean, you know, casually, I don't mean an academic or historian or whatever, but casually, when people talk about... uh Nazism, is that it was obsessed with reclaiming the empire, right? I mean, yes. you talk about reclaiming, literally resurrecting out of the ground, right? You're talking about subterranean, out of the ground, the Roman Empire and the map of the Roman Empire, right? It's yeah. like the Reich was, and you know, it's like Hitler didn't even, I mean, he kept his like own little maps of what the territory that he wanted, like secret from even some people within, you know, his closest um you know, circles, because the idea was no, actually, we're taking all of this. Yeah. Like, it was, it was, um, its empire goals were way more, uh, vast and, and like key to, uh, th- Even the concept of the Reich than anything the Italian right. fascists. I mean, the Italian yes. fascists had their, you know, would dally here and there, but it wasn't an empire that it thought of. It wasn't at all. It was even yeah. just establishing the state that was more important.
0: They would try to every once in a while, you know, take a direct translation of a Nazi concept and just import it into Italy, like, you know, Lebensraum.
1: Right.
0: Espazia yes. e vitale. Yeah, and the suddenly things, they're talking yeah. about invading Ethiopia. But yeah, it's like-, <laughs> like like Brace was just talking about this, you know, this hollow earth that comes uh to be sort of an alchemical precipitate for the yes. creation of the modern world that you know we kind of get there, this thing we've been calling the Spider Network, and see this bifurcated subterranean world, one half of which the you know, to Germans, the the proud public half of this resurrection that Liz is talking about, this unearthing and bringing back to life of, of the literal physical empire and also the metaphysical empire of the German folk. Yes. On the other hand, there's a trench full of, you know, God knows how many millions of corpses. And we get there and look at that and think... Be ashamed to waste all this infrastructure, right? <laughs> you know, you guys really—you dug a lot of ditches, you built some canals. There's some walls here. We like that, you know.
1: Well, I think I Hitler think, even didn't he even say at one point that he had resurrected the Holy Roman Empire. Like, I, I think he literally used that yeah. word
2: "resurrect." That that That's, was that 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 was the project.
1: Sounds
0: well, right. Yeah.
2: I mean, you talk about presaging, and we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that the, the, pre, the, the precursor to the NSDAP, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, was the DAP, the German Workers' Party. The DAP was directly started by the Thule Society as a political organ, right? Like, so, so, so the group that became the Nazi Party, which basically, with the change of the name, headed by this guy Anton Drexler, himself a Thule Society member, was started out of the occult. And Hitler was sent to join the DAP as an intelligence agent. Hitler was sent there by, by his commander to sort of check out what these guys were about. And he liked what he heard. And he got a membership card. And he started speaking at meetings. And so what we have there, in, in, in essence, is that the Nazis were, were a combination of two chemicals here, if we're, if we're using this sort of allegory. The chemical, which is, which is <laughs> acidic and uncomfortable of, uh, of, uh, of intelligence work, and the chemical of the occult, of mm-hmm. symbols, of history, of magic, of darkness and tunnels, both of them, combining into this new thing. And yeah. it, unlike anything the world has ever seen before.
1: I mean, thoroughly modern innovation in that way. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. On, on one side, you can sort of, not rationalize, because it's not about being rational at all, but you can use the darkness and tunnels by figuring them as excavation work back to the glorious resurrection you know on the other side the darkness and tunnels lead exactly where you think they lead
2: We'd be remiss if we didn't mention the murder here of Walter Rathenau because the, the murder of, of, of Rathenau really sums up so much of kind of what we're dealing with in this time period. Rathenau's father was like a very important industrialist. Rathenau himself was important to the German war effort during World War I uh, in the economy side and, and afterwards, a very important post-war politician and he was also a Jew. In fact... Uh, when he was murdered, his murderers, who, who I'll talk about in a second, actually believed that he was one of the literal, real, no shit elders of Zion.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> El- yes. The elders of Z- the protocol of the elders of Zion, by the way, is itself a forgery done by Russian intelligence. Yes. Right. True.
0: So what prince. we have here
2: is an intelligence organization, which is what Organization Consul, his murderers were, it is essentially a, a, a CIA-like organization within the Fry Corps that engaged in political murders called the FEME murders, uh, sometimes with a cult bent. We have these people reacting to another intelligence, organi- another intelligence project, and they murder Walter Rathenau, and they kill him on an important date. Uh, which, which coincides with, with uh, let's say, a pagan festivity in German uh, that would have been familiar to people who follow Volkish ideology. Uh, and and it, it, they believed in that moment that, like, I can't stress this enough, they thought they were killing one of the elders of Zion. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's um, imagine being the guy who thought you were doing that. Like, Do like,
2: I killed one of the elders of Zion? Yeah,
0: like, on on the way back to you from know, the graveyard in Vienna, going, dude. No one's gonna believe this.
2: Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> like trying to reread Elders of Zion, be like, which guy is he? <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, dude, he's number two. He's he's gotta be number two. <laughs> There's One of the reasons Rathenau is is fascinating to me, as as any big pinch-on freak will know, is that uh, he is, I would argue, the center of the book Gravity's Rainbow, which is one of my favorite books ever and one of the most complex and insane books ever written, um, is a seance in which some Nazis, uh, particularly the heads of uh, Iggy Farben, which was the Nazi uh, industrial chemical cartel, uh, Resurrects Walter Rathenau. Uh, and they do it kind of as a joke and end up getting more than uh, they meant to. So Pinchon here gives a little uh, explanation of who Rathenau was. Says, uh, Rathenau, according to the histories, was prophet and architect of the cartelized state. From what began as a tiny bureau at the war office in Berlin, he had coordinated Germany's economy during the World War, Controlling supplies, quotas, and prices Cutting across and demolishing the barriers of secrecy and property That separated firm from firm A corporate Bismarck Before whose power no account book was too privileged No agreement too clandestine His father was Emil Rathenau And had founded A.E.G., the German General Electric Company But young Walter was more than just another industrial heir He was a philosopher with a vision of the post-war state he saw the war in progress as a world revolution out of which would rise neither red communism nor an unhindered right, but a rational structure in which business would be the true rightful authority, a structure based, not surprisingly on the one he'd engineered in Germany for fighting the world war. And so I th- I think there is a, a vision there too of, you know, we've, we've talked about magic and fascism, uh, magic in the occult as they relate to other political you know political disciplines and political economies but there you have the basis of what will kind of become the magical thinking of neo neoliberalism you know the idea that the as he puts it the cartelized state the state reorganized as a system of you know resource cartels essentially uh will Includes such natural balances within its ecosystem as will, you know, set all things right at all times. As long as you just kind of plug the right numbers into the calculator, um, and then when the Nazis actually manage to summon the spirit of Ra'tanau, he tells them this: Consider coal and steel. There's a place where they meet. The interface between coal and steel is coal tar. Imagine coal down in the earth, dead black, no light, the very substance of death. Death, ancient, prehistoric, species we will never see again, growing older, blacker, deeper in layers of perpetual night. Above ground, the steel rolls out, fiery, bright, but to make steel, the coal tars, darker and heavier, must be taken from the original coal. Earth's excrement, purged out for the ennoblement of shining steel, passed over, We thought of this as an industrial process. It was more. We passed over the coal tars, a thousand different molecules waited in the preterite dung. This is the sign of revealing, of unfolding. This is one meaning of mauve, the first new color on Earth, leaping to Earth's light from its grave miles and eons below. But this is all the impersonation of life. The real movement is not from death to any rebirth. It is from death to death transfigured. And, I mean, if there's anything to sum up and harmonize with Braith was saying about the hollow earth, everything we've talked about with the subterranean, you know, the, the, yeah. the idea of this entire movement that, you know, Ratanau from the other side of death can see as being a, a, a kind of alchemical transfiguration of of death of darkness of waste of you know everything buried and passed over but what appears to be it's real transfiguration into you know what the nazis dream of is as he puts it not a movement from death to any rebirth it's only a movement from death to death transfigured
1: yeah, I like you know that idea of deeper and deeper and deeper, that there isn't actually an end, but that it goes deeper into the death itself. Yeah. And it's it discovers it, and, and uncovers, as it may be, or as you say, transfigures new forms of death and becomes new forms of death itself, the deeper and deeper it goes.
0: Yeah, and, and if you read this passage further and further, because it goes on for a while, you can see... Uh, those deeper and deeper strata of death not ending when nazism ends not falling no. apart with fascism but becoming the basis of the inorganic chemistry you know that fuels so much of the plastics boom mm-hmm. that's behind so much of the technological innovation of the immediate post war you know liberal capitalist west and uh that the very title of the book gravity's rainbow it means a bunch of different things but one of the things he's doing with that idea of gravity's rainbow is kind of visually rhyming the gravity that clutches these dead materials to the heart of Earth and transfigures them uh, with the flight path of a V2 rocket. You know, mm-hmm. it's the same shape as a rainbow, but it ends in destroying the exact thing that it has traveled over. It's a good book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a great book. I'm looking up my copy right over there on my makeshift shelf and I'm like I was literally just thinking, like, it's been it's been about ten years. I should probably pick it up again. Oh yeah.
2: I've never read it. I read I read the of course Crime of Lot Forty Nine, I've read V and I read uh, Vineland, I think, when I was yeah. much younger. Although I didn't like that one that much. I think but v I've V is never read- the
1: best introduction to Pension. Yeah, that's what I would tell people uh, to say. I read start that when with. I was a
2: teenager and I I I, I love it. I was actually yeah. planning on rereading it again. It's uh, so fun n- next week. Yeah. Um I we have to wrap up pretty soon. Uh and I, I just wanted to touch briefly on Colonia Dignidad.
1: Oh yeah. Uh, I forgot about okay. that guy. Yes, that thing, yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean we've kind of summed it up over the last two episodes where we had this 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 post war cult essentially that was itself trying to reach into pre-modern times pre-modern germanic times yeah. in, in the in the mountains of chile in a secluded area interlocked with tunnels making guns and gas and bombs
0: another you know series of subterranean excavations both the literal ones for the tunnels and the historical ones trying to you know dig up the exactly. dead strata of of an ancient bavaria that of course when you undertake these cultural products projects rather to reinstate some kind of past, it's always 90% imaginary. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's almost totally made up, but you, you sort of justify it with a few archeological relics and then go, see, this is the way it was. Uh, So there is, there is, I think your idea of, of framing this all with the, the idea of hollow earth and the subterranean and the excavated is, is exactly right. And I wish I'd had it before we started talking.
2: <laughs> well, the thing is, too, so, like, you know, we mentioned, I believe, in the last episode about the torture that went on underground there, about, about yeah. you know, uh, even under the cafeteria, men were being electrocuted. Their testicles were being squeezed in vices, et cetera. Um, that, that kept going. And eventually, Pinochet falls from power, After a uh, stuttered plebiscite, basically. Which, by the way, guys, guys like Pinochet, Hitler, etc. They love doing plebiscites. (laughs) They fucking love those because they. I mean, honestly, if it's a good way to sort of cement your rule because you don't really have a democracy because people can't vote you out. But if you give them something to vote on, it's technically a democratic maneuver, especially if you can control the outcome, which uh, he he did not go well for him. Um, But, but. Uh, investigations immediately begin to Colonia Dignidad, um, but it's a few years until their nonprofit status is revoked, when a few Dina agents like, really come out front and center and be like, yeah, that was like, uh, that was like a torture spot that we had. That was a black site. Uh, at, at a certain point, a, uh, one, of, one of Allende's, I think this is a bit of a poetic synchronicity, is one of Allende's personal bodyguards who's now the head of the detective agency in uh, post-Pinochet, or excuse me, like the detective... Federal Detective Bureau in post-Pinochet uh, of Chile, he is essentially given the case to investigate these guys, and he starts busting in on Colonia Dignidad. He goes there 30 times in one year, and he can't find Schaefer. This is, uh, this is, this is in the 90s to the 2000s. Schaefer is being hidden underground, which, again, like I said earlier, must have made him think of his idol, Adolf Hitler.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, in, in, in interviews, the, the detective says that sometimes when he was there, he could sense the fact that Schaefer was underground, that he knew he was there, that he knew he'd just missed him, but he, he couldn't catch him. Ooh. Schaefer eventually flees to, you'll never guess, Argentina, where he's arrested in, in, in 2005. 2005,
1: um, by the way, 2005. Two, yeah. <laughs>
2: 2005, exactly. You can actually watch video of Paul Schaefer's arrest.
0: It's, on weird. It's, it's, it's weird. Totally <laughs> it's very weird. It's
2: totally surreal. It's in does a game community. React.
0: He yeah. reacts a way that makes me uncomfortable.
2: <laughs> exactly. He's sent back to Chile where he was charged with the murder of a guy named Juan Mano, a member of Allende's party and, uh, and just like a, I believe, artistic photographer. Uh, Schaefer dies in 2010 of heart failure. But a few years before that, they discovered that giant weapons cache that I talked about last episode of grenade launchers, etc. Uh, again, buried under the earth, and and you know what? You'd think now, us having talked about this, that'd be like, well, this place is shut down, right? <laughs> this is, this is yeah. done.
0: After all those children, the Catholic Church, it, this has got to be over, right? Like, there's not a Catholic <laughs> Church anymore, is there?
2: Um, well, it actually changed its name in the '90s to Via Bavaria, and you can go there today and have a nice cup of orange juice, a good Bavarian meal. And stay in their hostel. No one's ever had a good Bavarian meal. Yeah, I was
0: going to say. I don't know what no it sustain. is.
2: I, I, I'm imagining like a gray sausage.
0: <laughs> I think that's right. A big like, slice of black bread. Mm-hmm. A, a yeah. beer that's it's yeah. like- The consistency of road tar. I
2: I don't think they serve beer there. I do think they literally only serve. I believe orange. I believe apple juice. Actually, they have (laughs) an an apple orchard. It's still a
1: very perverse place.
2: Exactly.
0: What is it with fucking evil people and being teetotalers? So vegetarian present company excluded. Oh yeah, I'm. It's not. We're not all that way, but
2: yeah. So the story of Schaefer is over, but the story of the Colonios, many of whom left the colony, uh, went back to Germany. There's actually the German government pays out a stipend to former members of the colony because so many members of the German government at different points went to the colony, looked around and said, no, this seems good. All good, man. Yeah. Um, and so, so they they're, they're paid a small stipend. There's actually a research project right now. Uh, I, I believe it's colonia-dignidad.com. Where 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 researchers in, in, uh, in universities in Germany are putting up interviews and testimonies and stuff, um, but but I want to say that like Schaefer died in our time in our world, but I don't believe he is he's buried in the hollow earth, but like the spirit of what he had faded into the rest of us. Right? It's like yeah. a smoke. If if you smoke a cigarette indoors, the smoke goes up and then it sort of dissipates. But what it really does is go into your walls. And so this, to borrow a phrase from a very good book, this human smoke, right? And I'm talking about the human smoke of everybody from Eugene Levine to the Prince of Thurn and Taxes to, to, to the Jews of World War II to the, to the post-war dead in mass graves around South America and Africa and Asia. Uh, all of that became this human smoke that, 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 that has faded into the walls and that, 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 that shaped the world that we're in today.
0: Yeah, and it it really troubles me to know about American black sites in Poland or in uh, Diego Garcia in uh, the Indian Ocean, or I believe there's there's officially been one discovered in Romania. And Mm -hmm. to think there's no reason, no reason in the world to assume that in 2050 a few people won't be sitting around talking about those exactly mm. the way we're talking about this right now. Absolutely. I don't, I I don't see a compelling reason to think any of this ever actually changed. You know, no, the, not at all. The, the techniques not only get passed on, they seem to get worse as time goes on. Uh, the personnel changes, but the roles, the personnel play both in a, in, a, in an administrative sense and in sort of an archetypal mythic sense seem to stay the same. You know, the the, the dramatis personae always seems to be the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the fact that th- these places, you can shut them down and obviously should, but the idea that by shutting one down, you have ended the phenomenon is is not only not true, it's actually the kind of thing that the people running them would like you to believe. Mm.
1: I think, too, you know, to circle back to kind of what we talked about at the beginning of the episode, you know, we are very much still in a world where God is dead. And we are very Mm. much still in the age and the throes of increasing nihilism. And, you know, it is a deep, acidic river that flows through pretty much ev- everything in our world, in our culture, in our art, in our politics, in our bodies. We are creatures of nihilism. We are not outside of it. No one is outside of it. We are shaped and formed by it. That is to say it's a condition that we all live in. And, you know, this, this, um, I'm reminded of, you know, we were talking about, you know, this this kind of mythic Volkish that's being cre- that the Nazis were creating is that you know this is happening in other parts of the world right now. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, there's a there was a piece in Harper's like a couple years back that's excellent. I think it was called "The Call of the Drums" that is talking about you know the far right parties in Hungary and them and them you know clinging and trying to resurrect this, basically you know ancient tribal hungarian past of this like you know bringing back attila the hun and you know anyone in between and these kind of resurrecting this ancient culture as people are trying to un, you know to 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 feel any kind of sense of of purpose and 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 um you know, get themselves unmoored in any kind of, or, you know, to, to stop being unmoored in any kind of way. And, yeah. you know, that's, you know, that's the nihilism that we live in.
0: Yeah, not, not so many years ago, I think maybe 2013, I remember hearing the head of the Golden Dawn in Greece mm. uh, respond to accusations that he was a Nazi. And he said, um, I'd rather be called a Nazi than a Jew. Because mm. at least the Nazis have clean hands. Jesus <laughs> Christ! Yeah, and and he said that in front of a, a a big crowd, making a speech. I believe he was he was uh, on top of a bridge talking to people below, and I I couldn't. I walked around for like an hour after reading that, feeling like I was in one of those Philip K. Dick like you know time warp things where the highway mm-hmm. wasn't going to be there anymore. Yes, <laughs> because it was like this. I just broke into a different world, didn't I? Like, this, this has got to be a different place. But no, it's, it's been in that exact same subterranean space we've been talking about, waiting, and we have dug up so much else from that space for our convenience, for our use around the world, that the other shit is going to come oozing up along with it.
2: Well, it's, it's if we think about this, if, if the if the ritual sort of blood sacrifice of world war one is what summoned Wotan what summoned Hitler and Hitler's blood sacrifice of world war two that summoned what we live in today. Right? So that like the only book by William Faulkner I've ever read is Requiem for a Nun. The only one I've ever read the other ones. It's like, I get it. You know, I know the N word too. Uh, <laughs> But it is a line from that. It's a very famous line that says the past is not dead. It's not even past. Okay. And whenever I encounter this stuff, that sort of rings through my head. Yeah.
0: The past is not only not past, it's in the process of continuous transformation. And we, we don't know how the dead are going to return to us when they do. We don't know what faces they're going to have.
1: But we know they will.
0: Yeah. That we do.
2: Well, that, that that conversation really perked me up, guys. Yeah, that
1: was a real uplifting one.
0: We fixed the problems.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel They're bad, over. like for ending. I feel like we ended this on like a very, um, like dour note. But this stuff is serious, you guys.
2: Well, well, one thing actually, I want to say that I that I wanted to say during the episode, but I couldn't think of a way to say it that made me sound uh, sane. Which is that <laughs> it's always a good sign. Like I do. I'll be honest with you. I do waffle between thinking of Hitler as the archetype of Wotan and Wotan himself. But the one thing that I do know from, from all of my experiences in the world is that it doesn't matter if somebody is the, is the avatar of a god or if somebody is the archetype of a god. Uh, you can still put them down. That's the yeah. thing. You, you, can, you can... nobody Nobody... Nobody is impenetrable with the bullets. Hitler did survive a lot of, <laughs> a lot of assassination attempts. I will say that. He, he survives an enormous amount of sometimes well thought out, mostly not, assassination attempts. But at the end of the day, he proved himself that you can pierce it. And you can pierce anything in this world. Nobody, nobody is untouchable. And so I wanna, that's, that's, that's sort of the, what I want to impart on people, is that nobody is untouchable.
0: And I think it in a fascinating sort of way, he he died of the myth dying. That's yes. one of the things that's always fascinated me about Hitler, that there were any number of points in that war when he could, in sheerly strategic terms, have just stopped
2: yeah. and said, yeah.
0: okay, yeah, man, I, I really took over a lot of territory. Wow. <laughs> yeah,
1: like, we're good. <laughs> I
0: yeah. got a roman well, empire here. I beat France. Yeah, exactly, but no he he was driven by this compulsion of you know the the mythological vision he had, and it was the death of that vision that that broke him, you know not Absolutely. any actual necessary military defeat and yeah. and I think it, in in the same way um, it, it can be easy, especially now when there's so much news packed into so little time to focus on individual really small uh defeats and reverses and successes and whatever and we we lose the the mm-hmm. vantage the kind of you know zoomed out uh camera focus to think about going after not just you know point a point b point c but the vision and how killing that can destroy the rest you know a kill the body the head will die sort of thing
1: absolutely yeah. So I got to say that this has been, I think, my favorite series of sub series or whatever we're calling it that we've ever done. Michael, you are such a fantastic guest. I know that our listeners um, are big fans really. And I just am over the moon about how much fun this has been these past couple episodes. And I got to say, I can't wait to do it again.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. It's been really, I'm not bullshitting you. It, it, Privilege to be on these. I've it's, had so this much has fun. It's been a blast. Yeah, the show is so great. I mean, I've, I've been listening to it since the first day you did it. <laughs> so, yeah, being on here has been fantastic. The best podcasting type thing I've ever done, easily.
2: So, you can follow uh, uh, Mr. Judge here at, at Corpse in Orbit on Twitter and, uh, and check out Death is Around the Corner podcast, um, which. which Believe me, you like hearing this, guys. I'm telling you, I wish... Sometimes I listen to myself speak. I'm like, boy, Young Chomsky could really, you know, put some juice onto this to make it a little deeper. But but <laughs> Michael here, he's got it down. <laughs> uh, but that, 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 the thing is, that's the price. That's the price because I'm Jewish, so I do get several thousand dollars a month out of your tax money. Mm-hmm. But I also have to talk like this, which is, it's not, it's, you know... Um,
0: uh, we didn't make that trade. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> I have nothing to say about it.
2: Um, it's okay. I mean, uh, I get to be one of the well, not uh, the youngsters of Zion. I guess they call it. Oh my now. god! <laughs> well, okay. tikes. <laughs> On that um, note, <laughs> all right. Signing off. Uh, my name, of course, is uh, Brace Belden. I'm Liz. Liz thought I was going to do a funny, funny name there. I can see it.
1: I did. I thought uh, you were.
2: And we are joined by producer Walter Schellenberg. I'm just kidding by <laughs> producer Young Chomsky. And that is true and on. Bye bye. <laughs>